Good evening. We are in a series on Sunday nights looking at some of the more misused and abused pieces of Scripture. Tonight we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Before we get there, we're going to look at some other passages to kind of set the stage. A question that I get quite often is, where do you come up with the ideas for your sermons? And the answer to that question is a variety of places. Uh, when I first started preaching, I had a wise minister tell me, you need to be reading something all the time. And so I try to do that. I try to read, and I get a lot of ideas from reading. Uh, I go to lectureships, and I listen to other preachers, and I hear them say something. I take notes, and I think I can turn that into a sermon. Sometimes it's just a title of a lesson that I see, and I think, well, I can do something with that. I have been known to call preacher friends of mine and say, hey, I heard this sermon you preached. you mind if I kind of adapt it to something else? And of course... Preachers do that quite often, so they don't ever mind. I remember when Jimmy Jividen was still with us, I went over to his house and we were talking and I said, you preached a sermon several years ago called Homesick for Heaven. I said, would you, you mind if I preach that? I said, I, I think that that needs to be heard again. And I said, of course, I'll tinker with it and, you know, not plagiarize it and make it my own. And I'll never forget Jimmy responded by saying, I wouldn't tinker with it too much. <laughs> so... I preached it exactly the way that he had it written. There's a lot of places that I find inspiration for uh, sermons, and one of those places is online. It's amazing what you can find as you scroll through social media. Now, I am kind of a, a casual observer on like Facebook and Twitter, and I, I would encourage you to be as well. I don't think anybody's mind has ever been changed by reading the toxic, you know, arguments that go back and forth. But I have noticed something recently, and maybe you have as well. It's these, uh, it's these pictures, and they're, you know, got flowers and all this kind of, uh, you know, beautiful landscape and scenery behind them, and then they have some sort of inspirational thought. And several of them lately have been projecting a perception concerning body and soul that is absolutely unscriptural and one of them says ultimately the body is just a shell it is the soul which defines the man or woman god or goddess another one i came across said begin to see yourself as a soul with a body rather than a body with a soul maybe you've seen some of these now, let me say i, I don't want to be the crusty old preacher i don't want to be the you know get off my lawn guy and I don't question the sincerity of anybody who posts this. I believe there are a lot of religious folks out there that sincerely believe certain things and they're not trying you know, to, to present false doctrine or things of that nature. But these are things that Scripture just doesn't get behind. This is a concept that Scripture just doesn't affirm. Here's the deal. We're going to talk more about this later on in the year in a sermon series about body, soul, mind, strength, all those kind of things. We're going to take each individual part of the Shema in Jewish orthodoxy, the love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're going to take each one of those aspects and look at them, and we'll get to soul in that series. But let me just say this tonight going forward. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. And that's an important distinction to remember. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. And the human soul is comprised of both body and spirit. The Jews didn't make this dichotomy that we often do, that the body is disposable and that it's this shell that really holds the essence of who you are. That what really matters in you 
is your, your spirit or your soul. That's the part of you that lives on and the body just doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't profess that at all. In fact, that's closer to Gnosticism than it is anything else. Many of the views that we have today concerning the afterlife came from Plato. They came from Greek thought, not Jewish thought. And some of them are, are very uh, skewed. They're, they're way off when it comes to what Scripture teaches. Scripture doesn't teach that you have a soul. Scripture teaches that you are a soul. Gnosticism was that heresy that John fought against, you remember, in 1 John? Gnosticism basically carried with it the idea that the internal stuff is what mattered, the spirit, the soul, that's what mattered, but your body was fleshly, it was worldly, and so therefore it had no use, and in fact it was holding you back. So it was the disposable part of you that served no good purpose, but the soul truly mattered. And many in the realm of Christendom have long held the belief that the physical is bad and decaying, while the spiritual is the good stuff that we need to cling to. But even Paul doesn't make that contrast. The way that we use the word spiritual is not typically the way that the New Testament authors use the word. Now, in the Greek, the word is pneumatikos. Virtually every time this word is used, it means animated, influenced, or empowered by God's Spirit. And Paul almost always uses pneumaticos in contrast with sarkaikos, which means fleshly or carnal. So sarkaikos is not the same thing as physical in the way that we think of it. But it's easy to, to mistake that. We, we, we end up making this a contrast between the spiritual and the physical, and that's not exactly what Paul was doing. The way Paul used carnal was in relation to things or people that were passing away or even sinful. So according to Paul's way of thinking, things are either empowered by the Spirit of God or they are empowered by human weakness or human effort. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 42, it reads like this. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living person. The last Adam was a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man from the earth, earth, uh, earth, the second man is from heaven. As is the earthy one, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly one, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul is contrasting pneumaticos, or spiritual, with natural, the word for natural there is sukaikos, very similar to sarkaikos, he states that our current bodies are indeed natural and our resurrection bodies are going to be spiritual. But he does not mean that one is material and the other is not. He means that our current body is natural in the sense that it is mortal, it is decaying, it is that tent, that earthly tent that we live in that is subject to the elements, right? While the resurrection body will be spiritual because it is transformed by the Spirit of God and therefore it will be immortal and imperishable. So look, the, a mature Christian 
who walks in the Spirit is both. They're both physical and spiritual. They are spiritual and physical, and both are obviously good. I mean, God made your body. It's a good thing. However, a person is not spiritual if he is not animated, influenced, or empowered by the Spirit of God. But even then, he doesn't cease to be physical. He's still physical in nature. The carnal individual is the one who is not influenced by the Spirit, but is influenced, rather, by the world. So we need to stop contrasting the physical and the spiritual. Instead, we contrast the spiritual with the carnal, or the worldly, the natural The spiritual individual is animated by the spirit, while the carnal or natural is weak and thus subject to death. If you look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, in the King James Version it reads, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, as we're going to talk about in our series later on in the year, soul in the Hebrew is the word nephesh. And while the King James translates nephesh as soul, the New American Standard renders it person. The NIV refers to nephesh as being, and the English Standard Version uses creature. But I want you to notice the language that is used here. The language indicates that a soul was not something that Adam had, but rather what he was. Adam was a soul. Now, incidentally, nephesh doesn't just refer to humans. Nephesh refers to all of God's created beings, all animals. And you say, well, but I thought that's what separated man from the animals is his soul. No, man's a soul. Animals are soul. What separates us from the animals? Well, the fact that you were made in the image of God. That's what separates you. The fact that you were stamped in the image, with the image of God. So hopefully we're clear that the body matters, that it's not disposable. Not only does it matter here, it matters in eternity. Paul makes it crystal clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that one day our spirit will be reunited with our body and we will walk out of the tomb just as Jesus did. Now, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which is where we're studying tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, here's what Paul writes. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, two shall become one flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man commits sin against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Let me ask you, what made the temple in the Old Testament special? What made it special? Was it the ornate fixtures and, and, and furnishings? Obviously not. What made the temple special was who resided there, right? That's what made it special, the fact that God was there. For the Israelites, 
The temple was the sacred meeting place with God. It's where they worshipped. It's where they made sacrifices. It's where they presented their requests to God. Before the temple, there was the tabernacle. What made the tabernacle special? Why was it so special? Well, if you look in, in Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 1, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. This is the contribution which you are to raise from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, setting stones for the ephod and for his breastplate. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. So what made the tabernacle special? Well, if you read this, you might think it's all the, the ornate fixtures, it's all the fine detail, but that's not what made it special. What made it special is who was there. What made it special is that God chose to house himself there. But whether we're talking about the tabernacle or the temple, both were costly. David contributed much of his wealth to the building of the temple. We know that it cost the Israelites as well. There's a lot of labor involved in the actual construction. And why is this important? Because I think it shows us that dwelling with God is more than any precious stone or wealth. And dwelling with God comes at a price. You were bought with a price. And I know you know that, but it's important to remember that this temple that is your body, it isn't cheap. A heavy price was paid so that the Spirit of God could dwell in you. The day you became a Christian, something happened to your body. You became a little temple, a little tabernacle of God for Him to dwell and that has very significant implications. Here's the thing about the temple and the tabernacle of old. There was only one in a particular location. There weren't numerous temples or tabernacles in various places. There was one, but when Jesus came, he eliminated the need for one temple in a specific location. Now we have several little temples, don't we, that come together for the purpose of of worshiping God in community. God dwells in us. We come together to worship Him, to devote ourselves to Him. The fact that God dwells in us, His Spirit dwells in us, and we come together to form one unified assembly of temples where we praise God who has chosen to take up residence in our hearts. Now, why is this so often misused and abused? Why did we pick it for our series? Because all too often, do you know what we use this passage for? Speaking out against tattoos and piercings, overeating, smoking. You know what I'm talking about. That's our proof text. If you got tattoos, I mean, you know, your body's a temple. You shouldn't scar up your body like that. If you're overeating, your body's a temple. You shouldn't overeat. If you're smoking, you, should, you shouldn't smoke. I mean, it, your body's a temple, right? And certainly, we are to be good stewards of everything that God has blessed us with, and that includes our body. But there are some things that you're going to have to be okay with. Sorry to say. There are some things that you may not like. 
that another person does that you might have to be okay with. And you certainly don't need to rip Scripture out of, of its context to make it say something that it doesn't. Oftentimes we use Scripture as a proof text for something when that was not the original context in any way, shape, or form. Sometimes we, we want the Bible to be asking the same questions that we're asking when oftentimes it's not even approaching the topic that we want the Scripture to approach. Do you know what the context is of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19? If we're talking about sin, you know what the sin is that's being discussed here? We read it a moment ago. The issue at hand is sexual immorality. And in verse 18, he says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Why is this important? Well, sex is a unifying act. When two individual bodies are united in a sinful way, then it is sin against both bodies because sex was God-designed. But it's only God-ordained when it occurs within the confines of marriage. There's a reason that God placed boundaries on this sacred gift because we as human beings have shown that we can take anything good and pervert it. It's happened over and over again through the centuries. And it certainly happened with sex, right? So there's a reason why God places boundaries and restrictions on the good gifts that he gives. And certainly that's the case with sex. He is keenly aware that Satan will pull out all the stops in order to entice us to remove all the restraints, to cross all boundaries, and to run free. So it's crucial for us to understand that God put those restraints and those boundaries in place for our own protection. God's boundaries and limitations exist for our own spiritual good. And let's keep this in mind. When you're looking at the context here, yes, maybe there are some other aspects of life and other sins that people commit that can maybe fall under the umbrella of your body as a temple, so be careful, you know, what you do to it and with it. But the main feature here in Paul's writing in this context is talking about sexual sin. I want to be clear about that because I think all too often we use this as a proof text in a way that was never intended. If we're going to rightly divide the Word of God, then we need to understand what the writer is getting at, what he's, what he's trying to accomplish with what it is he is saying to his audience. We are houses of the Holy Spirit, which means that we walk by the Spirit, we are led by the Spirit, the Spirit dwells in us, and what is the result of that? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So with the Spirit dwelling within you, every word, every thought, every action is in view. We struggle mightily with this, don't we? Why do you think we struggle so much with it? Uh, because you're a human being. Human beings always will struggle with this. I mean, it's just part of our nature, right? More specifically, I think it all boils down to rights versus debts. And let, let me explain that. I have every right to do certain things. With my body, there are certain things that I can put in it. There are certain things that I can do, and I have a right to do that. There may be spiritual consequences, but I have every right to do certain things. For instance, I have every right like my grandfather did, to smoke non-filter Paul Mall cigarettes all my life. That's what my grandfather did from the time he was 13. Now, as he would say early on, 
there weren't all these Surgeon General warnings. You know, you, it, according to him, you really didn't know that it was that bad for you. Of course, as time went on, he didn't stop. And the more we found out about it, he still smoked. But, you know, my, my grandfather had every right to do that, every right to smoke non-filter Pall Mall cigarettes. But my mother would get on to him because I hung out with my grandfather a lot. And I would get in the car with him, and the windows would be up, and he'd be smoking like a freight train. And my mother would get angry and say, look, she'd call him dad. She said, dad, it's not about you any longer. My son's in the car and he's breathing in that air. So you may have the right to smoke non-filter Pall Mall cigarettes. You can smoke a carton a day if you want to. But at the end of the day, it's a different story when it affects someone else, right? So instead of thinking about rights, let's think about debts. In an effort to discern right and wrong, as well as an attempt to justify our actions, we often ask the question, will this send me to hell? That's a major question. It's kind of like the question of when you were in school and you want to know what's on the test. Just tell me what's on the test so I can know what to study for, so I can regurgitate the information, so I can get an A. And in our spiritual lives, we often ask the equivalent of what's on the test by asking, will this send me to hell? I think that's the wrong question. I think the question that we should be asking in all matters, especially as it pertains to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, and my body being a temple, I think the predominant question should be, what glorifies God? Ask that question before you engage in an activity that you think may be, you know, somewhat, um, you know, rights versus debts kind of thing. Will this send me to hell is not the proper question. And you may can answer that very clearly, but the best question is, what glorifies God? If I am a temple of the Holy Spirit, then what should my life look like? You see, I am not self-made, and you're not either. None of us are self-made. Nothing that I am and nothing that I have is truly my own. There is no such thing as a self-made man or woman. I shouldn't be thinking about my rights. I should be thinking about my debts. Instead of trying to justify what is within my rights, I should be seeking to live in a way that glorifies God. And the reason is simple. Because I have been bought with a price. You know, in politics, we have, a, we have a lot of talk around abortion about, you know, my body, my rights. No, no, no. I, I don't want to get political. This is not a political issue. You are not your own. Your body is not your own. So quit talking about your rights and start talking about your debts. Instead of talking about what you can and can't do, talk more about being a temple and therefore what that means. What do I owe? Not what can I do. What glorifies God? Not what, what will send me to hell. You are not self-made. None of us are. We have been bought with a price. This idea, it's my body, it's you know, my business, that's not true. It's just not true. You are not free to operate under your own authority. Everything you are and everything you do is governed by the one who resides in you. When the priest would enter the Holy of Holies, there were certain duties that he had to perform. There was a protocol that he had to follow. And it wasn't so much excitement that I get to go in and I get to be with God. No, it was more like fear because I'm afraid I'm going to do something wrong. In fact, the priest would have a rope tied around his ankle in case he messed up and died. They wouldn't have to go in and get him. They could just pull him out. It wasn't so much about excitement as it was fear. But they didn't take that protocol lightly. 
because they knew one false move and they could be dead. The temple had a specific purpose. The Jews performed certain sacred rituals within those walls. The temple was God's house. Therefore, he set the rules of engagement. And now, today, some things have changed, but one constant that remains is the fact of where God dwells. God dwells in us. And where God dwells, God calls the shots. Wherever God resides, God is in charge. So obviously that means everywhere, right? The omnipresent God is in charge. And certainly he is in charge of your life. You are not self-made. And may I remind you that we are redeemed. And may I remind you of what we're redeemed from. We are redeemed from the one place where the omnipresent God isn't. That's what hell is. Separation from God. You can have the, 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 the fire and the brimstone, the licking flames, the weeping and ashing of teeth. We can talk about all that all day. The worst part about hell is who's not there. All hope is gone. You are completely and totally without God for all eternity. That's what makes it hell. Of course, conversely, that's what makes heaven heaven. You can have the streets of gold and the gates of pearl. The best part about heaven is who is there. That you get to be with God for all eternity. We owe him everything. So forget about your rights. Think about your debts. Focus on that. This isn't about what you can get away with. This isn't about what's on the test. This is about glorifying God in all that I am in all that I do. I want you to think about what the temple represented for Israel. The temple represented a place of dedication, right? It was dedicated to God and his glory. The temple was a place of devotion. It was a house of worship, the place where God's people gathered to give praise to the Almighty. It was a place of death because every single, uh, every single time anyone would, went into the temple, they were confronted with death. Animals were slain there for the sins of the people. So it was a place of death. It was also a place of display. When the people saw the temple, it reminded them of God. That's what the temple meant for Israel. And do you know what, folks? That's exactly what it means for us. Same thing. It's exactly what it means for us. That is you. As the temple of God, you are the place of dedication, a life dedicated to God. Your spirit, your body is dedicated to God. You're a place of devotion. Your heart is devoted to the one who rescued you. You are a place of death. You have died, and now Christ lives in you, and you are a place of display. And so you tell the world what God has done here in you. You show that to everyone around you. Look, it may be your body, but it's his temple. Don't ever forget that. Clinton's going to lead us in a song. If we, can, if we can help you tonight, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.